Uh, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just pray that the words we read in the scripture would become real, that you would send more laborers for the harvest, for the harvest that's here at this campus at the University of Texas, uh, for the harvest that's here in Austin, the, for the harvest that's here in Texas and the United States and the world. Lord, we just pray that you would send more and more laborers uh, for this harvest because we know that the harvest is going to be bountiful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, turn your Bibles, if you have them, to Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 31. So that's where we're at in our series, Acts 9, verses 1 to 31. And I'm just going to read it to you guys. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument from whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may re regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem among those who invoked this name? And has he not come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Saul became increasingly more powerful and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. After some time had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night so that they might kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, 
brought him to the apostles and described for them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He spoke and argued with the Hellenists, but they were attempting to kill him. When the believers learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Meanwhile, the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was built up. Living in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it increased in number. Okay, so the passage we just read centers on the conversion of Paul, who we know as the Apostle Paul, uh, Saul, we know as the Apostle Paul. Saul is the Jewish name, Paul is the Greek name. It's not really a big deal. Just to make things easier throughout the sermon, I'm going to refer to him as Paul, so don't be confused by that. So who is Paul? Well, we first met Paul at the beginning of chapter 8. I hope you guys remember that, right after the execution of Stephen. Stephen was the first martyr of the church, right? The first person in Christian history who was killed for his faith in Jesus. And Paul was overseeing that execution. The people who killed Stephen laid their cloaks at his feet, kind of showing that he was the one in charge of this kind of mob hunt against Stephen. And after Stephen is killed, Paul begins the systematic persecution against the church in Jerusalem. He goes after the Christians, he drags them from their homes, and he puts them in jail to be tried and presumably executed, like Stephen. And so we read, we read about how the church scattered because of that, that's the beginning of chapter 8, and in the last two weeks, when we've been looking at that chapter, we focused on the story of one of the deacons who left Jerusalem because of that scattering, the deacon named Philip, and what he was up to during that time, preaching to the Samaritans and then preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch, that's what we talked about last week. But this week, we come back to the great enemy of the church, the one trying to kill the Christians, Paul. And we see the depth of his enmity in that first verse, Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Paul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Persecution is the air he breathed. That's what Luke is trying to tell us. He's totally enveloped in it. It's the atmosphere in which he lives and moves. That's how much he hates Christianity. So that raises a question in our minds. Why? Why, why does he care so much about the, the Christians? Why is Paul so offended by the Christians? Well, you have to remember, and this kind of gets into Jewish politics of the first century AD, and you guys know me, I love politics, so I nerd out on this stuff, but I actually think it's important to understand the dynamics of what's happening, because otherwise you don't understand the story. Paul is a Pharisee, and later on in Scripture, this is how Paul describes himself under the, this old life. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's how Paul describes his old self under his old life. We also learn he studied under one of the greatest Pharisee teachers of his day, Gamaliel. So Paul is someone who is extremely educated, one, he is also, later on we find out he's a Roman citizen, so that means he has certain privileges under the empire, so he has a high status. He's not just a Jew and an educated Jew, but he's also a Roman citizen. And then finally, he's a member of this Pharisee party. So who are the Pharisees again? The Pharisees are like populists. So, I mean, this is a, a rough analogy, but kind of like the Tea Party of Israel back then. They want to make Israel great again. That's kind of what they're about. They're not the elites, that's the priestly party. The elites are the ones who are kind of running everything. The Pharisees kind of see themselves as more of the people. The, the priests are the ones in charge of the temple, and they're not the Herodians, right? You guys have heard of King Herod. So there were a group of Jews who were kind of ruling the kingdom of Judea under the auspices of Rome. That's a separate group. The Pharisees are like the people party. 
And they are angry, they're angry at corruption, but they're not as far as some other group called the zealots. The zealots are the people who want to have a revolution. They're like the Bernie Sanders people. They're like, everything needs to come down. We need to recreate everything from the ground up. We need to kick out these corrupt Romans, like kick out Wall Street, right? Like just take, take down all the banks. That's what the zealots are want. So the Pharisees aren't that far. They still want to keep peace with Rome. But what they do want to do is maintain Jewish culture. That's what they're really concerned about. They think that the priests and the Herodians are too Greek in their culture. They've become too much like everyone else. And so the Pharisees, that's why in, in the Gospels, if you read, they're always talking about the law and obeying all the law, all the rules and regulations. And they're really, really, really attached to the temple, right? Because that's the, the locus, that's the, the focus of uh, Jewish identity. It's the temple, the promise that God is with them. And so because of all that, they believe that through obedience to Torah and through uh, a return to temple observance, God would bring about the final end when he would truly return to his temple and act through a Messiah to repair the world. That's what they believed, the Pharisees. But while the Pharisees believed that a Messiah would come, remember, they're not like the zealots. who The zealots thought the Messiah would come and lead a revolution. The Pharisees think that the Messiah will come and lead a cultural restoration. And at that moment, it's going to be kind of like the end of the world. So the, the Pharisees believed in a resurrection of the dead and all that kind of stuff. Anyway... That's Paul's worldview as a Pharisee. And not just any Pharisee, one of the most educated Pharisees, one of the most zealous Pharisees, and also a Roman citizen. And we see the extent of how committed his identity is to being the best Pharisee when he asks the high priest for permission to arrest the Christians in Damascus. Because remember, the Christians are scattered from Jerusalem now, right? So they're going out to Samaria. They're going out in all different directions. They're going to Syria, where Damascus is. And Paul is not content to just drive out the Christians from Jerusalem. He wants to go find them where they are leaving to and kill them there. He wants to arrest them and persecute them there. He wants to stamp out all of Christianity. Because what the church was saying was that the Messiah the Pharisees were longing for had already come, but he had come in Jesus Christ. And that's hateful to Paul. Because Jesus to Paul... And he, and he talks about this so much later on when in 1 Corinthians, in other passages in his letters, he talks about how Jesus is a scandal to the Jews. And that's because to Paul, Jesus was a failed Messiah. He was a Messiah who was killed by the Jews and the Romans. He didn't do anything great. Yeah, he healed some people and all that stuff, but he died. So how can he be the Messiah? This is ridiculous. And also, Jesus' message was that the law and the temple are not ultimate in the kingdom of God. The law and the temple are all signposts that point to the reality that the fulfillment of the law and the real presence of God has come in and as a human being, Jesus Christ, who is God. And that's blasphemy to the Jews, right? To say that a human being is God. And because Jesus' message as Messiah was attracting the attention of Rome and his church threatened by going around saying that Jesus is Lord, it's threatening to say it's, it's a threat to Rome if Rome heard of it because it's almost like they're saying Caesar is not the real king of the world. Jesus is. And so not just Paul and the Pharisees, but even the priests are really concerned that if this is not contained, the Romans might come and march and destroy Jerusalem. And so they want to stamp out the Jews, the Christians on their own. So all those are the factors that go into why Paul hates the church so much. Paul hates the church because he sees it as a false teaching within Judaism. They're even getting in Samaritans. They hate the Samaritans. They're getting in Ethiopian eunuchs. Eunuchs are not allowed to become Jews. 
they can't even convert to Judaism. We talked about that a little last week. They are worshiping a Messiah who, in Paul's eyes, was damned by God because the Torah teaches, cursed is he who hangs from a tree. It's an abomination in this sight, and he wants to totally destroy it. So that the Pharisee mission of calling all of Israel back to following Torah and observing temple can continue. So that's who Paul is. That's the context for who he is. And in this story, we see three things that happen to Paul that contain lessons for us. First, we see the interruption of Jesus in Paul's life. Second, we see the blindness of Paul removed. And finally, we see how Paul fits in the grand story of salvation now. So first, the interruption of God in Paul's life. Paul's on his way with his men to Damascus to destroy the church there. And this is what Acts 9 verses 3 to 7 says. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? And the reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Now, this passage says that all Paul saw was light. But in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1, Paul says this, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? And later on in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 7, he says, For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one prematurely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. That's Paul describing himself in 1 Corinthians. So, in Acts, it's described as just a light, right? But whatever this light was, it probably was not just a flash of light. Paul is saying in these later passages that he had a vision of the resurrected Jesus. That is equivalent to Peter and the rest of the apostles. That's his claim to leadership in the church, that he saw Jesus. In, in the early church, one of the ways that you were a leader is if you had actually seen the resurrected Christ. You were an eyewitness. And Paul is saying, I was an eyewitness too. I have authority too because I saw Jesus. He appeared to me. It's kind of like Paul's like a little kid and the other people are saying, yeah, Paul, you didn't really know Jesus. Jesus had already died and resurrected by the time you came along. And Paul's like, the little kid saying, no, I did too. I saw Jesus too. It kind of reminds me a little bit, this is a little bit of a sidetrack, but of like, uh, I worked for the Democratic Party in the Obama 2008 election, and Michelle Obama came and gave a speech, and I stood behind her, but for whatever reason, I was like on the edge, and so there's like a picture of her speaking, but I'm not in the picture. And so I, I'm always like, whenever I see that picture, I was like, I was there too. There's no proof, but I was there too. That's kind of what Paul is feeling uh, later on. So from these later passages in 1 Corinthians, we can be fairly confident. It's not just light that Paul saw. Somehow, he was given a vision of Jesus. But when Paul is blinded, he's unsure who it is he's just seen. Because he hears Jesus say, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, who are you, Lord? Paul realizes that whoever he saw in this blaze of light, this is his master. This is his Lord. That's why he says, who are you, Lord? And so he must have been shocked when the answer came. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. 
And when Paul, Paul gets up, he's blind. And he has to be led by his men into Damascus, unable to complete the mission he received from the high priest to destroy the church. God has graciously interrupted Paul's plans. All of us have a story that we consciously or unconsciously construct that we are living out. I've talked about this a lot, but I think it's really important. That's why I keep going back to it. And I was talking about this a little with uh, my small group at the lock-in when we broke up into our little groups. We don't always know how that story we have internally was constructed. Sometimes it's bits and pieces we kind of pick up from our parents for how they live their lives, like what their standards are. Sometimes it's expectations they've explicitly told us about us. One of my formative memories is when I was five years old and uh, my mom was talking about, I think my oldest guy cousin, Aji, who had gotten into college. And she was explaining to me, but we need to make sure you get a scholarship because that's the only way you'll get to college, go to college. And I was five years old, but for some reason, that memory was in my mind for a long time. And that's the reason why I was working so hard in, in school because there was this idea, I need to get a scholarship in order to go to college. Even though later on, as I grew up, there are other things, there are grants, there's, you know, uh, the federal government gives aid and all that stuff. But in my head, that my mom's words stayed with me. Sometimes it's stuff we get in from the wider culture around us. Sometimes pop culture and movies and social media and books. Sometimes it's insecurities we had from especially high school or middle school when we were awkward and trying to figure out what we were. But however it happens, we all have this conscious or unconscious internal narrative that explains us to ourselves, our identity, and gives us a storyline. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, you are a character in your own mind. There's a plot that you are following. And sometimes we're not aware of what that plot is. Um, and what I was trying to get us to think about Friday night, I don't know how successfully, was to wake up to the fact that we do have that narrative, that there is something that's driving us that gives meaning to how we interpret the world. And more than that, I wanted us to consider how much, if at all, the gospel of Jesus plays into that narrative, if it does at all. And here's something that can help you figure that out. I think, for example. So two people are friends, and they both have good jobs, and they both have good love relationships with someone else, like they're dating or something. And let's, for the sake of argument, call these two guys Ubby and Libby. All right? Um, so, and this is not a reflection on Ubby and Libby, but let's say Libby and Ubby both lose their job, but uh, they both keep their relationships. All right? This is scenario one. And Libby is devastated. He can't get up in the morning, he's paralyzed, he's distraught, he's overwhelmed with anxiety and depression. And, but Ubi is disappointed, maybe a little mad or sad for a little bit, like, ah, oh, that girl did that. No, I'm sorry, uh, not. He's, he's like, he's like ah, I lost my job, what am I going to do? I guess I have to be on unemployment for a while. But after a little bit of time, he picks himself up and he moves on. So that's scenario one. Let's do scenario two. Let's say Libby and Ubi both lose their girlfriends. This time it's Ubby who's just emotionally undone. He keeps going over and over everything that happened. What did I do wrong? Trying to figure out like how he can be better, how he can win her back. He's devastated. But Libin, you know, he's, he's sad, maybe a little bit mad. Man, that girl did that to me. But this time he's the one who's able to pick himself up and move on. So what's going on? These two different reactions to the two different circumstances tell us something about how Libin and Ubi understand their internal stories. The reason why Libin is so upset about losing his job, but not as much, he's upset, but he's not devastated about losing his relationship, is because his identity is more wrapped up with his job. 
and it's the opposite for Abi. Uh, Lipin can only really understand that when he begins to unravel the story he has told himself that has formed his identity, what it is he's really living for. And in the same way, the reason I brought up that illustration is I want to show you, Paul has an identity, and it's rooted in the story of being a great Pharisee, which has rooted itself in the story of Israel as he understands it. He wants to be the strictest of the Pharisees, the Pharisee who out of everyone else is not content to just drive the Christians out of Jerusalem, but wants to go all the way to Damascus to arrest them. But now his old identity has been exploded because God has revealed himself. God has interrupted Paul's story. Paul, now, God's interruption of Paul's identity is very unique because Paul has a direct vision of the beauty of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, and that changes everything. And not all of us are lucky enough to have that vision, to make that real in that very tangible way. But the first lesson for us from this passage is that God is actually interrupting our lives too, in small ways and sometimes in big ways. And what I want you to start to do as you continue to go about your days is to start recognizing that. Sometimes it will come in the form of devastation, a blinding light, a realization that everything you've been working for has come to nothing, has been frustrated, that's become meaningless in the face of some larger news. People get diagnosed with cancer, people die, you fail out of your school program, your relationship crumbles, and your world is tossed upside down because your identity is threatened now. The whole story you had told yourself about what your life is for is now brought into question. Now, I just want to be clear about something. God hates death and disease. I want to be clear about that because God's clear revelation in Jesus Christ is that he is an enemy of death and decay and corruption and that his will for all of that is restoration and healing. But even in the face of those great enemies of God, do you realize that God is able to work through them to interrupt your story and show you how empty your story is without him? Paul thought he was doing the will of God. Paul thought that he was a warrior for God, but really he was on the highway to hell. By persecuting the church, he was persecuting Jesus, which means he was persecuting God. He was an enemy of God. That's why he calls himself the chief of sinners, the chief of those in rebellion against God. So what I'm trying to emphasize to you this first lesson is God is interrupting your story in some way. Be awake to that, and then don't waste your interruption. Because it may have already happened or it may be coming to you, but there will come a day in everyone's lives where their internal storyline gets interrupted. And at that time, you will have an opportunity to see Jesus and to see how he's upsetting all of your hopes and dreams and then weaving them back together into something even greater, even more beautiful that revolves around him. And after that, he's actually able to use you as an agent of healing for others. And that brings us to the next part of the story and the second lesson for us from this passage. And that's what Paul began to see when his blindness was removed. So Paul comes to Damascus. He's blind. He's there for three days without sight, and he's fasting. He's not eating. He's not drinking anything. And he's praying. And Jesus appears in a vision to this other guy in Damascus, a Christian named Ananias. And Jesus tells Ananias that Paul had seen in a vision that Ananias was going to come to him and heal him and restore his sight. And Ananias is justifiably a little afraid, right? Because he knows Paul's reputation. He knows Paul is an enemy of the church and has come to destroy people like himself. But Jesus assures him and Ananias in faith goes and he prays for Paul. And I think in one beautiful passage, he calls him Brother Saul, right? Even though this is a guy who has killed so many different Christians, he calls him Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus told me to come and pray for you. 
And so he prays for Paul and the scales fall off Paul's eyes so that he can see again. So what was it that Paul's new vision allowed him to see? Now that his blindness is gone, Paul is able to reconstruct his identity around a new story, a story that centers on Jesus Christ. So what is it that Paul can see now? Verses 20 to 22 kind of tell us. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem among those who invoked this name? And has he not come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Saul became increasingly more powerful and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. So the first thing that, you, that Paul is able to see now, now that the scales have fallen off from his eyes, is the lordship of Christ, the mastery of Christ, the supremacy of Christ. He sees that Jesus is the son of God. That's what he's preaching in verse 20. He is the son of God, the Messiah who's come to establish a new rule, a new order, a new kingdom in the world. That's the message Paul is preaching in Damascus. And we talked about this last week when talking about the suffering servant. The significance of saying that Jesus is the one creating the kingdom. Because the Messiah is supposed to come and bring God's rule. Everyone agrees on that. But what does it mean for the Messiah to do that by dying out of love for his enemies? What does it mean for the king to be a suffering servant? If the king is a suffering servant, that means that his subjects have to be suffering servants too. Do you guys get that? If the king lives by the way of the cross, then everyone who is loyal to his kingdom has to live by the way of the cross. And that is, man, if you understand that, you understand like three-fourths of Paul's entire theology in all his letters. His, his theology is all about what does it mean for God to be a God who suffers out of love for us? What does that mean for how we're supposed to live our lives now? What does it mean for us to be a people of the cross? So that's the first thing that he's able to see, the significance of saying that Jesus is Lord. Before it had scandalized him, because it's ridiculous to say that the king is someone who dies. That's a failure. That's not a real king. But now it brings him to wonder and praise. Because he's saying, if that's what real reality is, that's what I got to be like. I got to be someone who suffers out of love for my enemies. And the second thing Paul is able to see, and we just see hints of it here, but we see it fully come out in his letters later on, is the beauty of grace. Paul reveals over and over, whenever he talks about himself in his letters, how aware he is that he does not deserve to be an apostle. He does not deserve to be loved by God, period. He calls himself the chief of sinners. He calls himself the least of all the apostles because he persecuted the church. He's only delivered out of his old life. He calls himself a man of violence because of the gracious intervention of God. He actually beheld the beauty of Jesus while he was hunting down the church. Of course that's going to save him, right? There's nothing good about him that made Jesus save him. He was saved only by grace. He was delivered only by grace. He was healed only by grace. He was blind, but a Christian who had no reason to trust him and every reason to hate him actually came over and prayed for him, prayed for him to be healed. So even his healing is totally from grace. And that should teach us something. First, it should teach us we are not delivered from evil by God because of anything good in us. So let's get that out of our minds. 
God's love for us was for us while we were still enemies to him. In the same way that Paul was an enemy to God because he he hated Jesus, our natural state is to be in enmity with God. Left to our own devices, we would be Pauls of the world. Self-involved, petty, violent whenever our interests are threatened. Our salvation is a gift from Jesus. Jesus who loves us so much that he does not abandon us to death and decay, but rescues us from the power of sin. And this, the second lesson this, this has for us is this should teach us to never presume who can be saved and who cannot be saved. Do you get that? Who's in and who's out? You all have friends who are non-Christians. I have friends who are non-Christians too. And we know that it's our responsibility to bear the gospel for them and to them. But there may be a temptation in our minds to assume well, Ubi is a little bit more receptive to the gospel because, you know, he kind of reminds me of me. He, he grew up in the CSI church in Houston, so if, if I try to explain the gospel to him, he can get it but living. It comes from the Martha Church, man. Uh, I'll pray for him, but I know he won't be too receptive to the gospel. His life is all about other things. So do you get what I'm saying? Like, you make assumptions in your head. This guy, this, this friend might be receptive to the gospel because he's middle class and he comes from a church background, but he's turned away from the gospel. But my Hindu friend, my Muslim friend, my other strongly atheist friend, God can never reach them. We can't think that way. If salvation is by grace, not without regard to merit or the past or personality or type, then there's hope for everyone. We can't prejudge who will be receptive to the gospel message and who will not be. So bring your friends here, man. Even your friends who you think will be weirded out by our small size and our lack of technological finesse uh, or numbers or whatever, tell them to come and see because the Holy Spirit is mighty and active. It's not because of us. The Holy Spirit is able to deliver a vision of Jesus that will transform everything. It's actually possible. That's what it means to be saved by grace. Lastly, the last uh, lesson in this passage is we learn how when God interrupts our lives— And our old blindness is removed so that now we can confess the lordship of Christ and see the beauty of grace. Then the storyline of our lives is transformed. That's what we see in Paul's life. We begin to realize that the point of existence, the meaning of life, is not our own little attempts to grab this or that little victory. I got into Vanderbilt Law School. Everyone's like, man, great school. But what does that mean from the standpoint of cosmic history? You know what I'm saying? Like, the billions of years that existed before Brian T. Matthew existed, and the billions and billions of eternity that stretches out after. What is the significance of the fact that I got into Vanderbilt Law School in in that kind of time scale? When God interrupts, all of a sudden, we are displaced from the center, and we're put in the proper eternal perspective. Do you see what I'm saying? And Jesus is enthroned in that perspective. Christ reigns supreme, and he must reign supreme in every area from our, of our lives, from the way we raise our families to the ways we pursue women uh, to date or to marry, to, to the ways we live, to the houses we buy, and the naked we clothe, and the hungry we feed, and even the majors we pick, and how we cope with death, disease, and hurricanes, and evil. When God interrupts, all of our lives, every aspect of our life has to submit to the supremacy of Christ. And again, this has been a common theme I've been hammering away at all through this series. But when Christ is supreme, there is reason both for fear and also reason for wonder and joy. Here's the reason for fear if Christ is supreme. It calls us into suffering. Uh, This is inescapable, and the life of Paul is exhibit A. Hear the words of Jesus to Ananias. Go back to verses 15 and 16. Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. 
that sounds pretty great. Uh, he's going to go in front of kings and he's going to preach about Jesus. But verse 16, I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Christian life is not a life where you are promised to be free from suffering. Christian life is a life where you promise that there will be suffering, but God will give you such a presence and such a joy that you will triumph over the suffering. Paul is called into a lifetime of suffering. And if you follow the life of Paul, as told us in the book of Acts, in his letters, and in church history, you see that it's, his life is filled with tremendous hardship. Paul never gets married. He never has kids. He travels from city to city all across the Roman Empire, preaching Christ and planting churches. But each time he's beaten, stoned, arrested, imprisoned, or driven away from the cities he visits. And we see that even in this first story of him, verses 23 to 25 is one example. After some time had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him in Damascus, but their plot became known to, Paul, to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night so they might kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. They wanted to kill him so much that they were looking to see where he was coming and going. And the only way he could flee from the city is the disciples put him in a physical basket, probably covered it up and lowered it over the wall so he could run away. That's Paul's life now. He went from being the chief of the Pharisees, probably the most respected of the Pharisees, a young up-and-comer, like a new uh, politician coming up, like a Marco Rubio, to now all of a sudden he's like fleeing in a basket, hiding. That's his life now. Uh, check out verses 29 to 30. So after he escapes Damascus, he comes to Jerusalem and he's like, hey, apostles, I'm one of you. I'm a Christian now. And they're like, well, we don't trust you. And so Barnabas has to come and be like, hey, guys, actually, he had this vision and he really is a Christian now. But even in Jerusalem now, in verses 29 and 30, he spoke and argued with the Hellenists. Those are the Greek-speaking Jews. But they were attempting to kill him. When the believers learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So he comes to Jerusalem and then he starts preaching Jesus and then they, the, the Greek-speaking Jews want to kill him now. So he has to flee from there too to Caesarea and then to Tarsus. That's the beginning of his life as a Christian. And that's what his life as a Christian looks like until he dies. As his life continues, even the churches he plants disrespect him. Read 2 Corinthians to see the kind of disrespect that Paul is dealing with. Or grieve him in some way. He gets in arguments and fights with other Christian leaders like Peter. He has this big confrontation with Peter that's talked about in Galatians 2. And Barnabas, he has this big fight with Barnabas over Mark who like Paul doesn't trust Mark because Mark kind of abandoned them but Barnabas is really like a father figure to Mark and he's like standing up for Mark and so then they have like a big disagreement and they just part ways that's his life he's arrested one last time in Jerusalem we'll get to that story in Acts decades after the story we're reading now and on his way to Rome to be tried by the emperor his ship crashes he's in a shipwreck on his way to be tried and eventually does get to Rome and after a period of preaching there he's eventually killed under the emperor Nero when Nero begins a systematic persecution and purge of all the Christians living in Rome. That's suffering. That's how Paul dies. If Paul had stayed a Pharisee, none of that would have happened. He would have been a great respected scholar, a leader in the Jewish community with maybe a nice wife and a family and a high income and a high status, but he forsakes all of that. And he counts it all as nothing for the beauty of Christ. And that's the wonder and joy that Paul is called into. That's how Paul summarizes life when he's instructing his protege, uh, sort of the next generation of leaders. That's uh, Timothy. So this is 1 Timothy verses one, uh, chapter 1, verses 12 to 16. I am grateful to Christ Jesus our Lord. So this is Paul. Think of Paul as like nearing the end of his life. And this is kind of his instructions to his protege. 
I'm grateful to Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a man of violence. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed with, for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is sure and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Before that very reason, I received mercy, so that in me, as the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might display the utmost patience, making me an example to those who would come to believe in him for eternal life. That's the wonder and joy of Christian life. By the mercy of God, though we are all naturally enemies to God and to one another, Paul is raised, he's graciously included into displaying the eternal glory and beauty of Christ to others. Yeah, there's suffering, but that suffering is little compared to what Paul has gained. A joy that can never be taken away, a peace that can never be violated, regardless of circumstances. And through his life, Paul is able to display the glory of Jesus. We know much of who Jesus is because of Paul. Paul wrote the majority of the letters in the New Testament. In fact, we can go so far as to say that the reason why Paul was chosen by Jesus was for us so that we can see his example. If God can redeem that, then he can redeem anyone. That's kind of what we're saying. It's, it's like if uh, a former KKK person became like the most radical Black Lives Matter person. That's the scale of the change that has happened in Paul's life. He is now for us one window through which we can see who God is, what ultimate reality is like, the point of all existence in life. And in the same way, that's how we need to consider ourselves now. We are chosen by Christ for the sake of the world. Your life does not belong to you now. Brian does not belong to Brian. Ubi does not belong to Ubi. Libin does not belong to Libin. You are here for a reason now, to display Christ to the world. Your life is a window through which other people can see the ultimate reality that revealed itself to us as relentless, personal, consuming love. And guys, that might mean you enter into suffering and confusion, that you might have to escape Damascus in a basket uh, lowered through a window. Your old storyline might have to blow up, the one where you just buy a really nice big house and a souped up car and you have a trophy wife to show everyone else what a baller you are. That story's over now. That's what being a Christian means. But the, one you, the story you are invited into is much more beautiful, much more meaningful, and much more life-giving. It's the only story that gives you real joy, pure joy, joy that nothing and no one can ever take away from you. And it's the story that's totally centered around Jesus Christ. So let's close our eyes in prayer and pray that this would be our story. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would interrupt our lives, God. That you would uh, work through the events that, and the chaos that is swirling around us to uh, reveal yourself to us in a flash of light. That you would speak to us, that you would call us out. That you would grab hold of us, God, uh, so that we're not able to run away from you that you would just capture our hearts and totally transform our desires so that instead of being enemies to you, we become suffering servants for your sake. Lord, we just pray that you would blow your Holy Spirit upon us. Make us laborers for the harvest that is here. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's all stand and say the Apostles' Creed together.